Good morning. Welcome to Warehouse. If you have, uh, are here and you have questions along the service as the day goes on, there is this card by you. It says the power of hope on it. And you can fill out, jot down any questions, information you'd like at any point during the service. Then when the offering comes around later on the service, you can put this in that basket or you can drop them in the yellow boxes on your way out. Today at Warehouse, we begin a series called The Power of Hope. And what we'll contend in this series over the next 10 weeks is that there's a power and hope that can change the course of how we live our daily lives, that it provides a catalyst and a ground for action, for living differently, for persevering, for finishing well. And I realize as I say that, as I talk about the power of hope, that we are less comfortable with that and less familiar with that than we are with the power of hopelessness. Because one of the things that probably every one of us has experienced at some point in our life is being in the midst of something and you realize it was not going to come out well. That the future expectation for whatever what that was, was not going to be good. And when that happens, motivation's gone, paralysis set, sets in, you just want out. I, I'm, a, I'm a competitive person, and, which means I don't like to lose. And I don't, in, in sporting contests, I don't give up. And so I can only remember one time in my athletic career where I, I lost hope and I just wanted off the field. Normally, when I fall behind in things, in games, I played better. I don't know what that says about me, but when I fell behind, I would play better because I desperately did not want to lose. But then there was this time in my junior year in, in uh, college, and we were playing Penn State in soccer, and they were really good. They were, let's just say it, they were better than we were by a pretty good stretch. They were the national champions the next year. That year, we almost beat them. This year, we did not. We were at Penn State playing in their massive stadium, and at halftime, we were playing well. We were losing 4 nothing. And as we gathered at halftime, it was like, how did this happen? Because really, we thought we, like, we were playing them kind of even. We were probably del deluding ourselves. Just, I understand that. But it seems like every time they took a shot, it went in. But it's halftime. It's 4 nothing. And we thought to ourselves, okay, it's 4 nothing, but we're not playing poorly. Let's just hang in there. And 30 seconds into the second half, they scored. It's 5 nothing. At that point, it was like proverbial the balloon gets popped. And it's all I wanted. I wanted off the field. Hope was gone. We were not going to win this game. All we were trying to do is not embarrass ourselves. And then quickly we realized that hope was gone too. At 8 nothing, yes, 8 nothing. I wanted out. I came out of one game in my college career, and that's because I ran into the goalpost. Seemed wise. I wanted out of this game. And... My coach didn't take me out. And Penn State, seriously, they were bringing up people up from the stands. Hey, you want to go out? Because you can beat him. Anybody can, really. I mean, that's how it felt. Ain't nothing. I just wanted out. Hope was gone. No realistic expectation that it was going to go well. Paralysis, apathy. I wanted out. Just a soccer game. Another one was in a couple of days. When that happens in things that matter in our life, like our relationships, our soul, our jobs, the pursuits in life that matter to us, when hope is gone, it's difficult to act. We know the power of hopelessness. What the Bible contends is that there is a hope that forms the ground for action, that hope produces movement, and that allows us to live a completely different way. It's where we'll go today. 
if at Warehouse we're nothing if not realistic. And so what we will do is spend a little bit of time exploring the perspective, the sense of how difficult it is to ground your life in hope. And this song presents some of that feeling, the feeling that all of us have had of wondering, is there anything or anybody out there to anchor my life to? Welcome to Warehouse. Sometimes at night I close my eyes and pretend, but it's never enough. If you came here today and you walked in and you heard me talk about the power of hope, some of you had this reaction. Seriously? So that's where we're going. Now this guy's going to get up there and tell me, you can just believe your life will be brighter and better. There's a power in your hope and you just have to believe that things will get better. There's always a silver lining. It's not. Sometimes there's another cloud right behind that. As I said, at Warehouse, we're nothing if not realistic. And the truth is that often what life looks like when stripped bare is a constant series of questions of, is this really going to get better? Beyond some slick marking approach, which tells me that if I try this, this new diet, this new book, this new self-help series, my New Year's resolution, yes, it'll get better beyond the new relational techniques, beyond the constant slamming of the things that do not change in our life, and then somebody tells us, oh, but there's hope. Your future will be brighter. And we wonder, is there any concrete ground for hope? The beginning of the last century, the 20th century, something happened. What happened was hope crashed. There's a writer named Mercia Elliott who wrote a book called The Sacred Canopy, and in it, this is what she wrote, in the onslaught of the modernist movement that questioned everything about what we believed and what was really there, there was this resounding sense to the answer to the question, is there anybody out there? Is no. There's nobody and nothing out there. There's nothing to ground our lives in. And so we've had this sense, we believed that there's a sacred canopy over our life, and that gave us protection. It gave us something within which to operate so that our lives were not simply isolated, and left to the whims and vagaries of life, its circumstances, and histories. And what Mercia Elliott has said, the sacred canopy has been shattered. We no longer believe there's something overarching our lives, and this is terrifying because we don't know that tomorrow will be better. And in the midst of that movement, Friedrich Nietzsche said God is dead, and he was unhappy about that. He was not being insulting. He was not being blasphemous. He said this core concept that has guided humanity for so many years, that there's somebody out there who's listening, who cares, and that there's a ground to our existence has been shattered. That concept is dead. It no longer exists, and this is bad. The modernist onslaught created this sense within our society that there might not actually be hope after all. In my opinion, the modernist onslaught has crashed and burned. And we've begun to awaken to the possibility that perhaps it's not as simple as the early arguments we heard against something being bigger and greater beyond for our lives. To the answer to the question, is there anybody out there, we're beginning to realize again the answer is yes. There's someone out there 
there's something out there, there might actually be a ground for hope for our lives. You see, the Bible presents this picture of hope, not a picture of hope that is grounded in, if I work hard enough, my life may go well. If I pursue the Protestant work ethic, that perhaps I can create a preferable future. The Bible approaches it very differently and says there is this concrete thing, this expectation of future that is solidified, and this actually becomes the underlying basis for how we live our lives. Essentially, the Bible says this, we're playing with house money. Really, it says that literally. We're playing with house money. Something has been secured for us, and now we can move positively forward in our life, not with wishful thinking, not based upon the vagaries of today or tomorrow, but based upon an anchor that lays below our lives. In this series, we'll explore the power of hope. We know the power of hopelessness. The power of hope is the power of movement forward in our lives. In this series, we will approach that through a letter that's written in the New Testament, a letter to the church in Colossae. And this letter is... Um, well, the New Testament. Here's the New Testament in a nutshell. The New Testament is four books that are on uh, the story of Jesus' life. And then it's got a book of history, which is the book of Acts, which goes through about 30 to 60 A.D. and the, 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 the beginning movement of the, the uh, start of the church. And then some apocalyptic literature, which just means it's lots of imagery, like the book of Revelation. And then a series of letters. And those letters were written by a number of different people, but the most prominent of them was a guy named Paul who had a dramatic conversion experience from trying to stop Christianity to embracing Jesus Christ. And, and he, he wrote letters. And he wrote letters to churches that he visited. He would go around and he would meet with people in different cities and throughout Asia Minor. And he would, he would bring this message of the gospel to them. And as they came to it, then he would move on to different places. And often what happened is he heard what was going on in those places. He would send letters back to them. The letter to, to Colossians is written to a group of people he never met. He had sent a friend named Epaphras to speak to the group there, and a church was formed, and it appears that, we don't know for sure, but it appears that some things were happening which were moving the people in Colossae away from the hope that they had found solid for their lives, and they were getting just a bit, bit off. It's like this about, you know the theory of navigation? Three degrees off center is a lot. It doesn't appear to it at the beginning, but if you're three degrees off, it ends up being a lot. I don't know if any of you have sailed. I've, I've sailed a couple times um, poorly, once while on a date, and I got stranded, and it doesn't make the date go well. I had to be rescued. <laughs> doesn't work. Can't get the sail in the wind. Anyway, so clearly I know nothing about sailing. However, three degrees off, what happens is if you're three degrees off at the beginning, it looks like nothing. If it keeps going, you get really far off. And it seems like that Paul writing back to this group of people in Colossae, he had, he had a sense that they were getting off and he wanted to solidify, clarify a core concept about where hope is found and how that can anchor all of our lives. And so that's what this letter is about. As you can see, Paul went all throughout Asia Minor. You can always tell when you're in Asia because there's the boot, which is Rome, I mean, which is Italy, and for some reason it's always kicking Sicily, and nobody really knows why. But that's, so that's where you know where it is. That's where Paul traveled around. And he wrote this letter, letter to Colossians. Now, uh, you know, I, I say this 
well, I just say it. Letter to Colossians is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is. I'm, I'm sure I'm not supposed to have favorites. Like, you're not supposed to have favorite children, and I don't. Love them all. But it's not really. I have favorite books in the Bible. It's like this one. Well, I like this that God said I like better than that which God said, which is probably true. There's something that seems slightly off about that. Nonetheless, the letter to Colossians is one of my favorite um, parts of the Bible. It has just some, uh, some beautiful passages, and it gives core concepts that can change the way we live our lives on a daily basis. And so we begin. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we have heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you have heard about in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as in the entire world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, so it has also been bearing fruit and growing among you from the first day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. You learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow slave, a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, one of the things that's true, which I said before, is that hope produces movement. And what has happened is that Paul, we, we think he's in a jail in Rome, and he hears about something going on in Colossae. He hears about movement. It, like you see in verse um, 6, the gospel that has come to you, just as this, in this entire world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, so also it's been bearing fruit and growing among you from the first day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. He hears, even though he's far away, he hears that there's movement. There's real, practical life change in this church. And so he knows that they have embraced something core that's true about hope. Something has anchored their life that has made a difference in how they're living. Hope always produces movement. And so hearing in this movement and then hearing a rumor that perhaps they were getting a bit off, he writes back, to clarify something to them about where hope is found. And today I'm going to focus just really on verse 5. Your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you've heard about in the message of truth, the gospel. In the Bible there is this uh, trinity of words that is often used together, faith, hope, and love. They seem inextricably bound together. Faith, believing or trusting in Jesus. Uh, hope, what we believe about our future expectation. And love, how we live our life in regards to others around us. And what Paul will say in another place is that among these three, love is the most important. Treasure these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. Well, why is that so? Because when you clarify, when you come down to brass tacks, what Jesus would say is that there's only two things that matter. Really, love God and love others. At one point, he clarifies. We talked about this a lot at Warehouse. He clarifies the whole Bible and says, do this, love God and love others. The longer I live my life, the more years I gain on this earth, the more I believe that's true. That if I can find those core things to cling, through, cling to and live out, everything else can slip away and it'll be fine. Love God. 
love the one for whom I was created, live in a connection with him that fuels my life and is core to how a creature is to live before their God who made them and redeemed them, and love others. Let your life be exemplified by a way of treating others around you that is profoundly different, is free. I think, as I think about how we often try to love, we, I think sometimes we expect too much from others for our own life, and we give too little to those who need it most and expect it least. There is, to me, a simplicity about love that touches each part of our life and has something to do with common decency and dignity that recognizes that people are made in the image of God and so how we treat them in the individual in those small moments actually matters. There's a, a book by Tolstoy called Family Happiness and in it one of the things he writes is that happiness is found in giving love to those who do not expect it. I think of the simple things like what happens when we're walking out of a store and do we hold the door? Yes, I'm a northerner, so it seems odd for me to talk about holding the door for people. Nonetheless, there's something that seems so right about the smile to somebody who doesn't expect you to care about them. The small moments where you give your life away to people who expect nothing from you. And yet something in their heart is raised when we do. There's something about loving in the simple ways that to me has become more profound and more important. Paul says the greatest of these is love. Jesus says, love God and love others, and you'll do well. In this passage, what Paul says, though, your faith, which is your trust in the redemption that Jesus has brought you, that Jesus Christ came to die for you and to forgive you. And when you believe that, it changes how you live all of your life so that you trust God in the individual moments. You trust Jesus' paths and ways. That and the love that you have for God and for others, as important as these things are, they're found or anchored in something else. And that anchor is hope. He says, your faith and love, which have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so today, we'll talk about what that hope is that can ground our action. I want to pull out two words out of there, or two phrases out of there. First of all is, your hope is laid up. Now, the word laid up, it's actually two words, but the word laid up in, in Greek has this, this sense of it's, it's reserved. Something that's, that's set aside and, and reserved and being kept for us. What's, what I think is interesting about that is what God tries to get across to us in this concept of hope is hope is not something that we gain by how well we do. In other words, our life doesn't get more hopeful by our actions. That's certainly true in the, in the individual uh, you know, practices of things we pursue. But what he says is there's something else. There's a deeper ground to your life. And hope, it's as if it's a solid concept. The future expectation of good is this solid concept. He says, I got that over here laid aside for you. Okay, I'm going to keep it safe for you. It'll be reserved Set aside, always there. Hope, the future expectation of good, 
is guaranteed, set aside, laid up for those who believe in Jesus. And then what Paul says is it's laid up in heaven. Now, what is exactly does that mean? Well, as I've told you before, heaven is used, it, it, all it means is the vaulted expanse. But heaven is used throughout the Bible as a, as a picture of, of God. Uh, you know, the, that, the culture, the Hebrew culture at that time didn't like to say the word God, and so they used heaven, the kingdom of heaven, things like that. Thank heaven. And so when Paul uses heaven here, when any writer of the Bible uses heaven here, it's talking about a couple of things, but one of them is it's talking about God himself. And so if our hope is laid up in heaven, what is, the, what is sort of the character of that? What's the core of that? Well, a, a couple of things. One, it means God. That what your hope is, what's secured, is that you get God. The presence of God is guaranteed for you if you put your faith in Jesus, if you ask him to forgive you, you get God. That's secured. It's laid up. It's set apart. It's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from other worldviews and other religions is they would tend to say, if you do well enough, you can probably earn a relationship with God. And that's how we see life normally, right? We get what we deserve. You work hard, you get what you deserve. Christianity says, no, no, not, not the way to go. You don't get what you deserve. I will give you a relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus if you believe in that. And it's secure. Can't be lost. Solid. Is there anybody out there? Yes. Will he always be there? Yes. Is my connection with him sure, secured, and reserved for me? Yes. The second thing I think that means laid up for you in heaven is that it's eternal. Now, we don't like to talk about eternal very much, right? Eternal seems to us very, very far off. A concept that's different in an increasingly existential world. When we think about the next moment, the next day, it's hard even to think about the next week, the next month. We think about what's happening right before us. And so the concept of eternal can be a difficult one for us, and yet an extremely important one for us. Roller coasters are really fun if you can handle the... Um, trauma on your stomach, and they end, and they're not your actual life. Being terrified while going down and knowing you're going to come back up is one thing. Living your life as a roller coaster, relationally, work, soul, pursuits, is just terrifying. Often we live our life as if it's a roller coaster. Our, our sense of peace, our sense of joy, our sense of purpose is subject to the vagaries of what happens today. Today goes bad, roller coaster's going down, going down hard. And the problem with that is, apart from something external, apart from something secure, I have no assurance the roller coaster's coming back up because it's not a ride. What God says throughout the Bible is that there is an eternal hope. That human beings don't end. We begin, but we don't end. We go on. And so our hope laid up for us in heaven is that a guaranteed relationship with God for whom we were made that doesn't end, that won't come to an end, that won't get short-circuited, that goes on and on. And so it provides perspective for our lives so we do not have to live to the vagaries of what happens today or tomorrow. Yes, things may do not hear me wrong. Things may go very south tomorrow. I make no guarantees to you about how your relationships are going to go, how your jobs are going to go, how the economy is going to go. 
Why would that be silly? Make no guarantees. And I think often the caricature that's made of Christianity is that what Christianity does, if you just apply these principles, your life will go beautifully. Do you not see evidence of that? What I see evidence of is the powerful connection to God, which gives us an eternal perspective that girds our life, that underscores our life, that helps to ride through and experience something powerful and secure at the end of our days. And so we live knowing my life is not subject to the plot line that happens. There's a bigger picture. And the last thing I think that means our hope laid up in heaven is that this, our soul in the end, in the end, our soul will be well. Postmodernists don't like happy endings. It used to be that movies and books ended upbeat. Classic storyline starts out well, crashes and burns, happy ending. It's a classic storyline. Postmodernity has crashed the classic storyline where it starts out in the middle, it goes vaguely poorly, and then it ends. Recently, I read a book, and it's actually not, it was written almost 100 years ago, so just in the very beginning of the postmodern movement. But it, Faulkner wrote, As I Lay Dying, and I don't, I don't know if you've read As I Lay Dying. If you do, tell me without using any cliff notes who the narrator is, and that would be tricky. The fascinating book, but it, it is not happy. You read this book, and it's complicated, and it's intricate, but it is not happy. And you walk through this family that's relatively miserable, and then it just sort of ends. And it's not well at the end. I'm going to say this. as uh, uh, For those of you who know me, you'll know this will be true. If you don't, ask somebody who does know me. I will not tell you it's just going to get better. I will not say there's always going to be a happy ending. I will say this. The biblical promise, the ground that provides movement, pause, that keeps us from paralysis, that allows us to plug in over and over in our own soul, in our relationships with others, the thing that allows us to do that is it will end well. It will end well. The last page of the story, which will go on, will have our soul well, eternally secure, connected with God and alive. It will end well. And so, this is what it made me think. This is what it made me think. As I go through my days, what's my worst case scenario? Seriously. Everything crashes and burns. What's my worst case scenario? And I found myself going back to a verse in the Old Testament. It's, it was a verse I learned when I was in seminary. And while I didn't enjoy all of seminary that much, they did show me, among other things, this verse, which I don't think I would have found before because it's in Zephaniah. You know, it's a little, little book, little prophecy. My guess is that many of you have not read Zephaniah. And there's this little verse tucked in there. This is what it says. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. My worst case scenario in life is that the Lord my God is in my midst. He is a mighty warrior to save and deliver me. 
He renews me with his love, and he shouts over me with joy. This is my worst-case scenario. If everything else crashes and burns, this remains true. Do you know how many people shout for joy over you and I? How often does that happen? You walk into the room, and people go, Josh! (laughs) Next time. There's something actually in this passage that's so foreign that it's even a little uncomfortable. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. And God takes great pains throughout the course of the Bible to place these verses in there. In the midst of Zephaniah, which isn't that happy a book, got to be honest with you, it's not that happy a book. And what God does is he writes, the Bible is a book written in context. It's written in the context of people's actual lives as they struggle through war and famine and loss and deceit and betrayal. And, and in the midst of that, God jumps in. He keeps pursuing us. He keeps jumping in and giving us these verses and this, these truths that remind us there is an anchor for your life. If all goes south, this remains true. There's an anchor for my life. Comforting, yes, but quite a bit more than that. You see, when we lose hope, paralysis sets in. Just get me off the field. I don't want to play anymore. I'm embarrassed, and I know it's not going to end well. Just get me off the field. When there is this anchor of hope, I don't ever have to come off the field. I, I can keep fighting. Hope is the power to produce movement in your life and the things that you actually care about. As you wait in a difficulty in a a relationship, your worst case scenario is the Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save you. He renews you by his love and rejoices over you with singing. And so my soul grounded in a relationship with God that I cannot lose, secured of being eternally with him, I can continue to persevere. I can move forward. Hope doesn't get lost. And so I can live differently. And I can act differently. I I tell you, this is something we, I, too often fail to remember as we go through our days. Too, we're too caught up in the plot line. Too concerned about the next particular event. And it might go wrong. The Lord our God is with us. He is mighty to save. Your soul is secure. He has your best interest at heart. You have an anchor. So you go through this series. What's going to happen is in th- for three weeks, we're going to set up the power of hope and how it anchors our soul and fortifies it. So that, in the next two parts of the series, we will look at an entirely new way to live. How we can architect a life of more adventure and more pursuit. And then in the last part of this series, we will talk about finishing well. How we can persevere to the very end, through tough times, through tough situations, through all of our lives, so that we can finish well an important concept. So 
If you are somebody who's a follower of Jesus, this is my encouragement to you and I. To renew, to remember, or maybe for the first time. You may have become a Christian and you may not have ever really thought about the fact that your hope is secure. Let this be the underground for your life. When your soul begins to get twisted and turned, believing that the next event is going to determine whether your life is, will come out well or not, let these words resonate. There's a hope for you that's laid up, set aside, secure in heaven because the gospel is true. God loved you, pursued you, died for you, rose for you. When you believed in him, he grabbed you in, and he has charge of your life now. If you are someone who has never believed in Jesus, if honestly Christianity in the church has been something where either you avoided or you thought it might give you a big pick-me-up on a certain day or because it might help you to behave a little bit better, it might. Quite a bit more than that. What Jesus attacks is hopelessness. He attacks with relentlessness, with ferocity, the hopelessness of the human soul that believes there's nobody out there, that there's nothing for us, that our end is not good. He attacks it with every fiber of his being. It's why he lived and died, so that your life could be anchored in him and you could have hope today. Hope that breathes, that moves, that produces positive, powerful change in your daily lives. Let's pray. Lord, give us hope. In a world where sometimes the circumstances tell us, they seem to scream at us that there's no reason to hope, give us hope. A hope that goes beyond our moments, a hope that's settled and secure, which can change how we live today. We can be more responsible more determined, more invested, more confident, more secure. Because you, our God, are with us and are mighty to save. Because you have rescued our souls through the gospel of Jesus Christ and connected us with you now and forever. And because it will end well. Help us to live powerfully and cleanly out of that pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come into our time of worship, we begin this with our offering because what we core believe is that it is God who creates hope within us. He pursues us, he anchors our life, and then out of that we move back toward him and toward the world around us.